Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on General Electric Marine's key programs. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, for a look at the week ahead and anything else that's on his mind. Byron, hope you guys uh, had a great weekend and welcome back. We did a lovely fall weekend. Uh, indeed, great, great time to be sailing before you uh, haul uh, haul the boat, right? Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our uh, coverage of uh, strategy. Um, Byron, I want to start off, right? I mean, we all of Washington, uh, and indeed on Friday's podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Democratic $3.5 trillion initiative, you know, what happens with the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure measure, uh, debt, uh, right? I mean, obviously, we have a, a, the government stays open until December the 3rd. There's a little bit of this sort of confusing narrative that somehow Joe Biden was you know, is being taken hostage by progressives. But anybody who looks at what he was saying in the campaign, he campaigned on all of these issues that are bundled up in this $3.5 trillion uh, initiative. Where do you think we are and where do you think we're going? And, you know, we heard from Michael last week, Michael Herson, who suggested that um, if if this measure passes, then defense budgets are going to face pressure but you see that somewhat differently. Walk us through where we are, where we're going, and how we need to be thinking about where we are. Well, yeah, and obviously there are a lot of balls being juggled in the air by Washington right now. You know, it's not just infrastructure and the reconciliation package, but also the debt ceiling. You know, I'll, just stepping back a little bit, I think it's it's important to keep in mind that um, people throw around big numbers. So obviously, three point five trillion is a big number. You know, but it is over a ten year time frame. If you look at Congressional Budget Office projections of of GDP, which are fairly in line with consensus economists' expectations, it's about 2% of U.S. gross domestic product over that time period. Um, I don't want to diminish the risk that's always there that interest rates do rise significantly and start to crowd out defense. And and, there are elements to pick at in, in the reconciliation package. But You know, I also think it it really does get at some foundational issues that undergird U.S. military power, Um, education, uh, you know, a a trained workforce, um, certainly infrastructure, you know, investment in in basic research development. So to kind of see these things as, as divorced from one another, you know, you really you have to think about the sinews of, of military power. And I think a lot of it really does get to some of the foundational issues that, that are going to be addressed in, in this package. So, so to see it as an either, or I just, I don't see it that way. And, and do you see, and so from, from your standpoint, if this fails, it actually has defense and national security repercussions. Oh, yeah, as because because I, I think of the whole package crashes and burns it's just, I just don't see where Congress would then turn around and pass another $25 billion for defense. I mean, defense is one of the lower order issues. If you look at U.S. Uh, kind of opinion polls on, you know, what are American top priorities? And I, I just, 
I think I have a hard time believing that um, if everything else crashes and burns, Congress will just turn around and add $25 billion to the defense budget um, for, the, for the fiscal 2022 request. So, you know, it, it's all kind of linked um, to a degree. I mean, clearly uh, the administration is going to move to scale back the reconciliation package. I think it's, it's still not clear what's going to end up in the, in the cutting floor. Um, but I do look at these as linked and I'd be, I'd just be very surprised if you see FY22 appropriations for DOD that are, uh, you know, that $25 billion increase when, in, when the president's plan, you know, showed a much higher increase, but there's zero increase in non-defense discretionary spending. It, it, it just, I, I'd be shocked if that's the way it really plays out here. One of the things uh, Dove mentioned is that we've already, uh, you know, I mean, obviously anybody knows, uh, Dove Zakheim knows uh, that he's uh, a man of fiscal uh, prudence and, and balance, right? I mean, not not one way nor the other in, in terms of sort of rigid views, even though he's a proud Reagan Republican and a proud conservative. Um, you know, mentioned the fact that a trillion dollars, you know, the administration already has spent a trillion dollars, although in fairness, right, I mean, that was still at the height of the pandemic uh, when when that measure passed early in, in, the, in the Biden administration. From, from your standpoint, as we're looking at uh, the national debt and the debate about raising the debt ceiling, you, you've, you've talked about when, when we've spoken sort of, you know, how national brittleness, right, that if you don't address some of this stuff, it actually becomes a little bit of a national security problem as well in terms of uh, inequalities of, of society. How do you, how do you, how is it we need to be thinking about the debt at this critical moment, right? Because anytime you flirt with debt default, capital markets don't really respond to that well. And then. Yeah. And, and Bago, I mean, the other, obviously the other, you know, the, the kind of elephant in the basement right now is the debt ceiling and the deadline that secretary Yellen has set for, you know, the exhaustion of extraordinary measures that the treasury can undertake. And, you know, there was a news story out this morning, you know, that um, uh, Senator McConnell is, you know, saying the Republicans aren't going to cooperate on the debt limit. And I, I just find that, A, you know, it's a game of chicken. I think we're, you know, look, th there's a very short cycle uh, to news here. And I think we're a week away from the story starting to pop up about, hey, if, we can't get the debt ceiling raised. You're not going to get your social security payment. You're, you're not going to, you know, your interest rate on your home mortgage might spike. Um, there are going to be all sorts of weird things that are going to go on in financial markets. If you look at what this does to short-term rates, let alone the, the overall credit worthiness of the United States. So I keep coming back to this, this thought that, you know, as much as, as uh, McConnell and, and the GOP may think that, you know, this is a very bad leak on your side of the boat, they're in the same boat. And when their constituents start, you know, burning the phone lines up about, hey, I'm about to lose my social security payment. Uh, these take place, I think the second, third and fourth Wednesdays of each month. Um, <clears throat> that's gonna galvanize some action here. And that, that's why I just think, you know, it's typical Washington DC will probably go right up to the end. Um, but I, I, I just have to believe that uh, a deal will get done. I mean, there is always the risk that <clears throat> something doesn't happen that, uh, you know, we kind of drive the car over the cliff. But um, I think the idea that this is a, a one-sided, you know, 
issue where the GOP has all the leverage over the Democrats, it's like, no, just, just wait until their constituents start weighing in on, on what this could do to their personal lives. Um, I, I think uh, one of the more deplorable characteristics in general in politics is that the leaks on your side of the boat. But then again, you also have to understand that from a GOP perspective, tanking the economy or at least damaging it somehow is is going to be a, a talking point and a political point in the 20 uh, in a lot of these 22 races. At least that's uh, what what the party d- does want to try to highlight. Right. Uh, where they're not going to participate in raising the debt limit to blame this. On, on tax and spend uh, Democrats, although I will say spending was was pretty robust uh, in the four years of the of the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, I'm this a particular leader. this particular debt ceiling issue. It's, it's just one of these things that should not be happening. I mean, there's shared responsibility, you know, uh, on all sides for this. And anyway, uh, I, I like I said, I just think you're going to come. It's not going to happen this week. Um, you know, but but as we get closer and closer to this, you know, you're going to see more of these news stories. I think it's going to, you know, get public opinion, you know, weighing in on this and markets may be weighing in on it, too. You know, the right. I, I've said this markets can squawk uh, loudly. I still remember being on a trading floor in 2008, watching the Dow plunge while um, Congress is taking a vote on one of the relief packages and markets, markets can and will weigh in on this. And that's, that's not a, markets are not partisan in their makeup. Um, you know, it's they're Republicans, Democrats and independents. So um, to be determined, but I, I just think we're a week away from a news cycle where <clears throat> people are going to start paying attention to this. Um, let me, um, we've got about two minutes left. Let me uh, take you on uh, the other things that you're paying attention to. Um, confirmation hearings and week ahead. Talk to us about what are uh, the, uh, the things on your radar screen. Sure. There, there are two, uh, I guess it's Tuesday and Thursday, Senate Armed Services Committee um, hearings on some of the DOD nominees, including Andrew Hunter for Air Force Acquisition and Technology. Um, you know, the, these aren't major events in their own right. Um, you know, people are usually well prepped before going into these hearings. But, you know, it's, it's also interesting to see here what kind of questions are asked of witnesses. And then the other thing, and this is kind of what I wrote about in my week ahead piece, was the defense and uh, federal IT services sector, because both Booz Allen and, and uh, Lidos are doing investor analyst meetings in New York City. Um, booze is on Tuesday, Lidus is on Thursday. So, you know, those are good. I, I always commend companies for taking time out to really explain their businesses and, and, you know, just kind of walk through what are they trying to do and how are they trying to do it and address some of the issues that are on people's minds. Um, so that those two events will probably shine a light on, you know, what's, what's a very important and changing sector as well as part of the defense landscape. And um, some uh, big uh, events that you're tracking. Um, Alessandro Profumo of Leonardo uh, is is speaking, and there are a couple of other. And Dr. Mara Carlin uh, of DoD Policy is speaking as well. What do you expect to hear from? Sure. Both? The, the, yeah, the event you mentioned with Leonardo's uh, <coughs> CEO is at Atlanta Council. <coughs> I think the Italian ambassador of the United States is also speaking, and I think it's just it's good to point out the um, you know as much as there may have been attention on, uh, you know, kind of the U.S.-France relationship uh, in, in the wake of the Australian deal. 
um, with the UK, US and over, over nuclear submarine and other technologies. You know, Italy is a very important part to, <clears throat> to US security and the US defense industrial base. Uh, obviously DRS is, is a pretty important player in the US defense electronics market. You know, Leonardo participates on the F-35 program. Speaking more broadly for the Italians, uh, Fink Cancieri uh, and the, the Constellation Frigate program. So that's gonna be worthwhile. And I'm, uh, I think that'll be an event that I'll probably have to watch the replay because some of these other things are going on, but people should tune into that if they're interested. Um, and Mara Carlin is speaking at a, um, a Middle East Institute event on just kind of broadly US policy in the Middle East. Um, you know, as much as there's been a focus on China, you know, Taiwan, including the, the continued and kind of alarming incursions that the PLA uh, Air Force is making uh, against Taiwan. Um, you know, there, there's a lot going on in the Middle East still. We still have Iran and, and the whole question of US JCPOA. Um, so it'll be interesting because I don't, I don't think Carlin's really kind of been out and about town. And I think this specific issue of US uh, Middle East policy from a defense uh, a Department of Defense standpoint is going to be a, an interesting perspective to hear. And, uh, and of course, all of this uh, is playing out uh, against the backdrop of uh, the administration continuing the tough, tough economic line uh, of the Trump administration on, on China, certainly with the statements today by, from the U.S. Uh, trade uh, representative. Um, and I should also point out, right, media speculation that Leonardo uh, is going to do another, um, try, try to do an initial public offering on DRS again. Um, do you think that it's going to bear fruit this time around? I can't tell you, Vago, but I think, you know, it's like a lot of these things. Some, sometimes if you can show the, the value of, of a particular um, property and, you know, arguably if, if DRS was a standalone company in the United States, it, would, it should command a much higher value than, than being part of Leonardo. But I'll leave that, you know, kind of the, that call to the sell side analysts who can really dig into this and, and make, the, make the calls and calculations about, about what it might be worth. But it's it's to me it's good that they're trying trying again um and so we'll see and uh obviously everybody knows leonardo drs is is uh one of our uh sponsors byron thanks very much always uh, a treat having you on really appreciate it look forward to having you back on again soon thanks a Anytime, lot Vago. thank you and joining us now is george avisis with general electric marine uh well, i should point out that general electric Marine has been uh, one of our longtime sponsors of our coverage uh, at the Navy League uh, at the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Huntington Ingalls also uh, sponsored our coverage, and of course, Fincantieri Marinette Marine uh, is our naval sponsor. George, it's a, it's an honor and pleasure. It was good seeing you uh, briefly at Navy League, and I'm sorry it's taken so long for us to talk. Hey, it's good to be here with you, Vago, and uh, it's always good to be with uh, friends and talk about uh, our wonderful business. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, shipboard propulsion is something I can spend hours uh, talking about, especially with somebody like you who's equally uh, passionate uh, about it. Let's talk a little bit about DDGX, uh, the Navy's new uh, destroyer effort. Um, that's a program that's been going on for some time. Obviously, uh, the uh, surface warfare community, uh, we were hoping that DDG-1000 was going to be the platform. Then we're working on the Flight 3 uh, destroyers, Arleigh Burks. But there is a sense that we need a, a more capable, more volume, different powertrain uh, future. Obviously, the Constellation class pioneering uh, combined uh, electric uh, 
uh, gas turbine and diesel uh, propulsion. Talk to us about where you guys see and where you guys hope the DDGX program is going to take us. Well, thanks, Vargo. Yeah, DDGX is uh, very important is the U.S. Navy has stood up a new program office, uh, PMS 460, headed by Captain Hart. So the, the Navy is becoming or is very focused on DDGX and they're seeing the DDG 51s and especially the Flight 3 has been a, a great ship, but it's essentially been maxed out. It is uh, limited in a, the electrical power capability. And so um, for future weapons and sensors, so they have decided that ship to be full electric. So uh, we see the, the Navy budgets, by the way, uh, to be determined, uh, to be very serious as providing a, a electric drive ship. Um, what we see from the Navy is that if following their present uh, process of including industry. Uh, so they've had an industry day and now they're asking uh, and will be asking people for input. So they're looking for um, industry and with the two big shipyards, be it Huntington Ingalls and Bath Ironworks, how do people, um, how do they gel their requirements? And uh, we see with uh, GE, uh, with this being a full electric, uh, plant being a, uh, a significant contributor, particularly with um, our gas turbine generator sets and also with our power conversion partners on electric drive motors and drives. Um, let me um, take you to uh, the uh, Constellation class uh, frigate. Obviously, the LM2500 G4 uh, is a core part of that propulsion. Uh, one of those uh, engines and then four diesel generators constitute the combined uh, gas turbine diesel propulsion. Obviously, electric motors, two electric motors driving that ship. Fincantieri Marinette Marine is, is developing that now for the United States Navy. Two are under contract, uh, and there may be some 20 of those ships uh, that, will, that will come. What are you guys looking learning in terms of executing that program, given your broader strategy of electrification for shipboard uh, propulsion? Yeah, the, the Navy is very much looking for proven and uh, equipment that works. And we're glad that we could take our GEL 2500 plus G4 model that's rated over 30 megawatts on a U.S. Navy day uh, that has been on a uh, uh, a number of ships in the international community, the uh, Italian and the French firms, for example. So uh, we're, we're, we're down to executing. Um, you know, we've got our vendors on board and we're looking for uh, delivery of, of that unit in 22. And we're working very closely with Fink and Tiari and all the upper level systems analyses and things to make sure that the propulsion system in integration works, but uh, we're all about execution. And uh, for us, uh, that's that's going uh, very well in collaboration with Think and Tiari. Um, th there is this uh, sense that some folks are, uh, you know, questions some folks are raising uh, that, well, I mean, this is so developmental in nature. Uh, you know, there is a big debate. I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on it on whether or not a ground-based prototype is necessary for, for this powertrain. Whereas, Actually, if you talk to a lot of people who are familiar with it, they're like, well, listen, this is a pretty proven uh, system. And even if you're going to change some of the individual components in it, everything here is a pretty reliable 
proven and demonstrated capability. Is, is that more your sense? I mean, do you see any long poles in this tent at all? Or is this something that is actually an adaptation of an existing the powertrain with experienced contractors who have experience doing what it is they're doing? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. It's a big debate by the Navy and Congress. You know, this uh, combined diesel, uh, electric and gas plant is nothing new. It is used on the Italian firms. And um, Congress and the Navy are very serious about uh, prototyping, what they'll call any first of a class ship that they will want a land-based test site. In a way, I can't blame them. You know, there's been some hiccups with some prior ship classes. Is it actually required on this one? It's the Navy and Congress would know better than I. Uh, but from our standpoint, the, the G4 is a proven piece of equipment. So that when they look to do a prototype, they're really not testing the G4 gas turbine. What they are testing is how things work as a system. What's the machinery control system? And maybe with some of the other vendors, but it's not like it's new technology. So um, I think the Navy's just being uh, very cautious and uh, we'll, we're fully supporting because uh, reliability, once these ships are in the, out in the fleet for 20 to 30 years, um, you know, we want them to work flawlessly. Um, let me just ask you uh, from a, uh, a clarity standpoint, just go back uh, briefly to DEGX. And, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the continuing and future roadmap uh, for uh, the G plus four engine. Um, are you getting enough clarity? I mean, I know that it's still early days on the DEGX program, but from the standpoint of the supplier community, um, the, the surface community has had a lot of fits and starts. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily asking you to comment uh, on that, but, but ultimately industry pays a price when you say, okay, I'm going to do 32 DDG 1000s <laughs> uh, and then you end up not doing it. And then you say, I'm going to do um, you know, a, a new surface combatant and you guys see hope uh, for your baseline engine, right? I mean, the LM2500 is the engine that drives the United States Navy and, and dozens of other navies around the world. And, and then they go to something different, for example, right? I mean, so ultimately this has uh, re repercussions. Um, it, do, do, are you getting, is, is this time a little bit different in how the Navy is approaching this? Uh, because there, there are folks who, you know, and we've talked to members of Congress about this, right? How important it is for the Navy to sort of get it right uh, in these future ship classes, given that we've had a little bit of a bumpy ride. Do, do you notice that there's something different in terms of how the Navy is approaching it this time? I, I, I do. I do. I think part of it, it is, is they picked all electric drive for the propulsion system. So the way that I call that system, I call it future proofing, is that it can make up for a lot of unknowns. How much power will we need for lasers and weapons and, and systems? This system is ex very flexible. So you don't have to know exactly what the design requirements are for the electric power. So I think they picked a very good system that's flexible and that can be used for the next 40 to 50 years. Second, it's, as you said before, with DDG 1000, with uh, dozens of ships and coming down to three. And if you recall back then, they stopped the DDG 51 line to bring up DDG 1000. And it was a huge hiccup to the industry base and the shipyards. What we hear from the Navy is that they very much want to have some overlap between the DDG-51s and DDGX so that we don't have that um, trough that really impacted industry and the shipyards. 
it's all a function of budgets, but uh, it's early. But I think the Navy and I think Congress is is listening and it is working it so that we don't uh, repeat that um, problem that happened years ago. And, and let me um, let me ask you uh, to just kind of give us an update. Um, you guys uh, pretty much have ended up uh, in the position you are uh, in part because you guys are continuously investing uh, in improving uh, the power, the reliability, et cetera. Where are you guys on the G plus four? Uh, program and what else do you guys have uh, in the pipeline, uh, especially as you again work to to bolster your capability, n- not just as a power plant uh, supplier, but actually a a full propulsion train uh, and and all the power components that go with it. Yeah, our our G four has been used quite a bit in the international market, and we're seeing that the U.S. Navy is very excited about it. And you know, to keep in mind. It's 90% common to our LM2500 product line. Um, it, so there's a, an awful lot of commonality in the, uh, the marine space and, of course, with uh, th- you know, over 1,000 units in the industrial space. So um, we're getting a lot of interest in that in the international community. Um, so, and then the other part of your question is um, our electric drive campaigns that we at GE are doing is uh, really taking um, taking off internationally. Uh, because as I say, that propulsion train is for future proofing. Because if you think of ships now that are going to be entering service, they're going to be working to the year 2060 and 2070. So not only DDGX um, destroyer, but Ourselves and our power conversion partners are working on uh, a destroyer in South Korea, an 8,000 ton destroyer, as well as programs in India and uh, Italy and and others. So we see that as a as a trend. And um, as people say, the equipment's got to work. And um, we think that's uh, a, a key message and a value proposition for what we have to offer. Thanks so very much uh, for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. It was great seeing you uh, again. Uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon at Surface Navy uh, Association. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, Fairwinds following seas, all the best to you and uh, look forward uh, to having you on again soon. Hey, thank you, Vago. Always uh, enjoy it and take care. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.